we acknowledge the original owners of the land on which we podcast, whose stories were told for thousands of years. Today, we are recording in Mianjin. We pay our respects to elders past and present who may be listening. Sovereignty was never ceded. A quick note before we get started that there may be some swearing in today's podcast. If you don't like swearing or usually listen with children in the car, you have been warned. You're listening to What in the NDIS Now, a podcast where I, Hannah Redford, and my friend Sam Rosenbaum interview participants and providers about all things NDIS. Hello! Today I have Alicia McDonald with me and I'm so excited to introduce her to you all. She is one of my funniest friends. <laughs> And I adore catching up with her. So, welcome, Alicia. Thank you. Funniest friends, almost unusual. I'm not sure. <laughs> I'm not sure what that means, but I'll take it. I'm happy to be a friend. Ah, <laughs> it's. I always think you um, have awesome stories, but not just that. Like you have a knack for telling stories that always has me in stitches. Yeah, that um, it is a gift, <laughs> I think. <laughs> um, I do need to keep a cap on it though sometimes, so um, bear with me. <laughs> so um, we'll start with where did you grow up? I um, was really, really blessed and I grew up in um, the biggest country town is just is Rockhampton. So it's a regional centre up in central Queensland, but it's got a very much uh, country town feel. Um, it's the beef capital of Australia, but it's also the, at one stage, the um, took out the awards for most pubs per capita. And also we had a bit of a rep as a uh, serial killer capital of Australia at one point. Um, second only, I think, to Adelaide. But... Um, it's it's a bit glorious, but I was really blessed to be there. It was a, a, a really nice, nice childhood to be part of a, a big town. Oh, that's awesome. Mm. I think the reputation of the most pubs per capita is hilarious. Yeah, well, it, back in the day, it wasn't a particularly big town. There's only like maybe 55,000 people there. And we at one point we had 27 um, pubs, oh. So which is a lot. You yeah. Know, you could literally get a drink any day, any hour, yeah. um, which is inspiring in and of itself. <laughs> awesome, awesome. So what led you to the disability sector? Oh, well, straight out of school, I, I actually graduated school a, a bit young. I was still 16 when I went off wow. to schoolies week. So at that time... Um, you know, when we were doing our university applications and all the rest of it, I was a 15-year-old. And so um, I had a lot of guidance from from my mother, actually, and she pretty much just looked at me and said, right, you're going to be a nurse. And it was just a, you know, I can be grateful to her for that decision. Absolutely. It just suited me. So I, I worked my way through my degree. But before I'd even finished my degree, I began working in... Um, 
a federal contract for disengaged youth. So I, I never actually ever hit the wards. I always just worked in community and, and people who had um, different needs, um, lots of comorbidities, lots of, um, at the time I didn't recognise that I was working with people with, with disabilities because that's not the language we were using then. Yeah. But in retrospect, you know, what we were calling troubled youth were basically kids with undiagnosed disabilities and, and multiple forms of multiple disabilities that were all um, pooling together to, to become what we were calling troubled youth. Um, and uh, shameful to be part of that. But uh, now that you, I know better, I do better. Yeah. And I, look, I think you, you work in what there was in the day and and the the language although you know we get better with language but sometimes you know even in government inertia is <laughs> sometimes something that is so hard to get over and even if some people in the sector knew better even at that time they couldn't get the government to move beyond where they were at the yeah. time so um I think I understand that. So did you end up get it finishing your nursing degree? Yep, but I never registered. So I've never actually ah. been a proper nurse. So I'm an academic, uh, you know, academic at best. Nurse. Yeah, yeah. So I've never, I, I'm not a real nurse, not a proper nurse, no. Oh, wow. That's yeah. so interesting. I know. Um, probably, you know, I like to live without regrets. But, you know, if I'd had that decision again, I certainly would choose differently. Yeah. 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 Okay. That makes sense. And so then um, you've at some point come to Brisbane. Yeah. Um, 2000, I came to Brisbane. So the the company I was working for was a group training company. Um, and, you know, I was young and fresh and ambitious. And it occurred to me that for me to actually get a promotion in that company, it was one of the very biggest, um, a really big successful company in town. Um, it was a, a big group training organisation and I literally had to wait for someone to die before I was a chance of promotion and so, you know, so young and cocky and, and full of myself, I just figured I was due for better things and um, also had to get a husband so I thought let's let's broaden the, let's broaden the pond <laughs> and um, found myself, uh, I got um, requested to come down for an interview. Um, a bigger company had the same federal contract that we were operating up in Rocky. And I thought, this is me. This is me. So the city lights blinked and I fluttered my lashes back and here I am. So I've, uh, 23 years, so I'm not quite local yet. I, I'm not a proper prisoner oh, no. night. <laughs> it's only 23 years here. So um, I'm trying to settle in though. Yeah. <laughs> That that discourages me having been here for now almost six years. <laughs> oh um, no, you're a terrorist still. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I still don't know the name of every suburb or where where I'm ever going when someone says, Oh, do you go out to some place? And I'm like, Where? <laughs> no, no, I'm a I'm absolutely a refidex. That's an old word for the young'uns out there. Um, Refidex for the southern side. Um, I get lost the minute I hit the water. The minute I go across the river, I'm lost again. But I know my way around the south side really, really, really well. Um, my first job, I had 26 schools to visit. Oh, wow. As part of the Jobs Pathway Program. So I learnt my major arterial roads 
really fast, really yeah. fast. It was really good. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, so um, what do you do now? Support coordination. Um, I absolutely love it. I've just fallen into my groove. I will always, always do this. I've got another, without letting you all know how young or old I am, I've got probably another 15 years of, of work and um, I can't imagine I'll do anything other than support coordination or, or, or similar, you know. Yeah. Who knows Who knows what the NDIS will do to us, but um, I love it. Um, I'm a big cheerleader for the NDIS and a, and a big cheerleader for, for people with disability, which I just love it. I love support coordination. I get to be sassy. Yeah. And uh, oh yeah, well you in fact have to be a lot of the time. <laughs> I, th- I think to be good, you've got to you've got to have that that balance of sass, but also empathy and compassion, and and really big ears for really big listening, um, and listen to the things that are unsaid as well. Yeah, yeah. So here's a big question, mm. and it's a bit funny to ask because of course sometimes I have to ask questions that I already know the answer to. <laughs> so, but. What does a support coordinator do? Oh, well, that's a tricky question. And um, it's tricky because it's, um, I could give you the paper version, the definition, like the textbook definition. But the other thing about support coordination is it tends to be, or I tend to be, um, quite flexible and, and bespoke in my approach because it really depends on on, on the participant, my cust- I call them my client, um, what they're needing from me. So sometimes it's more of a recovery coach model where I'm, I'm looking to support people through, um, you know, the, the ebbs and flows of their wellness. Um, and other times it's really about being almost a concierge where people are, are looking to you to just get things organised, um, lickety-split and efficiently. And then other times you're really there um, and you're able to jump straight into that capacity building and, and um, providing people with the um, increasing their capacity to, to self-advocate and, and self-manage. So it really, it, it depends is the answer. And, and sometimes your, your client is not, not the obvious person, you know, sometimes yours, the best way to support the participant is to support their natural supports. So, um, you know, if we've got a, a spouse or a child in a caring role um, or a parent in a caring role, um, they are our greatest tool. They are our really our sharpest tool and our most efficient tool. If we break them, we are absolutely lost. So sometimes supporting our participants is about supporting their chosen people as well. Look, absolutely. And I think you've you've actually done an awesome job. I love asking people this question because because support coordination is so varied and it is the way every single person does it is is different and and how we do it for each client is different. And so it constantly cracks me up the idea of trying to say, well, in a nutshell... So it's we'll never it, in it's, a nutshell. No. Um, which is why why I love love the question so much. So um, um, you, what company, tell me a bit about your company that you work for. Oh, I'm working um, at a company called My Care Collective. Um, it's, while we do have broad registration, we actually have made uh, an executive decision to specialise and focus in just support coordination. So 
Um, on paper, we look like we are everything to everybody, but in real life, we just do what we're really good at, um, which is support coordination. Um, it just makes sense to me. I love being having that independence, so I don't have affiliations with any um, particular care providers. You know, I've got providers that I love working with. Um, yes. I've got providers that I less enjoy working with. <laughs> um, but all in all, by being so independent and having such a broad network, it really means that I can, you know, make, make really, um, I guess, customised recommendations to people about, you know, what services would match their needs. Um, and that's from the very beginning stages of plan management right through to matching up psychology, matching up OTs, matching up um, workers that have specialties and experiences, um, right down to... Yeah, everything, every single part of it is is about matching those things up together. I agree. There's, I often say that there's two services in the NDIS that should absolutely be independent, and that's plan managers and support coordinators. Oh, here, here. And there is no way that a support coordinator should be part of a company that also provides any other service under the NDIS because... Oh. To me, that's a conflict of interest. I, I think it's possible. It's fraught, though. It's fraught yeah. with risk. It's fraught with danger. It's yeah. It, it is possible. Is it easy? Absolutely not. Is the additional admin burden to do it really, really well, um, and and to evidence that you're doing it really, really, really well. Yeah. And I guess the other thing is to be um, true to yourself, and you know. Make sure, you know, am I being un unduly influenced? And so all of those things come from, I guess, it starts at a management level and trickles down. So if you're working in an organisation where management um, is push, 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 and you've got KPIs and you've got budgets, and um, I think that would be a very, it's a difficult position to be put in. Um, in saying that, though, I think that because we're working in an industry that you know, we're all here for, for humans. We're here to, to improve outcomes and support goals for humans. Part of that and the unpopular part of that is that our very first step as, as an organisation, particularly those bigger providers that are providing um, daily supports, for them to be consistent and reliable and show up every day with top quality staff, they actually have to be viable, you know, from a business perspective. So... I do understand it. I don't like it, but I understand it. And it's not, it's, I'm just so fortunate though that it's something that I don't have to choose. I don't yeah. have to choose to be part of that. Um, but I do understand how other organisations do it. So it's not ideal. It's possible. It's messy. Great. Look, I think, I think you've, you've put it really well. Um, I, I always hope that other people think of, this industry as, you know, and think of the people first. Sometimes I don't see that. I I see people looking at numbers or looking at dollars. Mm -hmm. um, not everyone is looking at dollars. Some people are purely looking at like just numbers like, oh, we need 25, we need 50. But the ability to have support coordination separate is just so... To me, I think it is so much better. Absolutely. And look, as a, 
as a carer, like I, I am, I am just like millions of other people out there in Australia, and, and I have a caring role for people with with disabilities. Um, and so, when I'm wearing my carer's hat, I will absolutely choose independent every single time, yeah. every single time, without fail. Um, and yeah, but it it is it is, and I think that the fact that we are even using the word industry mm. and business. Um, it pretty much is. It's it's fraught. But then again, I also remember the days prior to NDIS. Of so, course. So um, I, I think that the, the use of the word industry and business and the way the NDIS has become an industry and a business is kind of just one of those, it's collateral damage basically considering the steps forward that we've made the changes to people's lives, their ability to reach the goals and lifestyles of their choosing. Um, so it's not a perfect system. You know, it's it's a long way from a perfect system. <laughs> but it is a much closer to perfect system than we were experiencing 20, 30 years ago. So um, will we get there? Will we get better? Yeah, I'm the bastion of hope. But um, are we there yet? Not yet, not yet. Right. <laughs> Look, like the NDIS is absolutely far better than block funding ever was for anyone. Oh, it's oh, the I'm, shambles yeah, it's that amazing. that was. Oh, I think it goes back to our earlier chat about, you know, know better, do better. Yeah. Um, we've, we've just, as a community, as a society, I, I don't think we've ever had such a um, rapid change of thought, you know, on a, on a broader community level than we are having now at the moment with disability, um, you know, and to open a can of worms, but, you know, tran transgender and, and gay rights and all the rest of it that we, you know, it really wasn't very long ago that there was marches in the streets for the very most basic of human rights. And we've come so fast, so fast. I'm, I'm really proud of the society we're living in, to be honest, around that tolerance and acceptance. Have we got a long way to go? Yes. Are we doing better? Yes. Absolutely. I was actually really excited um, last week when the S Queensland state government changed the laws for birth certificates. And so now people can change their gender marker on their birth certificate without having to have surgery. Mm -hmm. And that is just so, so important. And, you know, like, welcome to the 21st century, because every other state other than Western Australia have had this for a very long time. <laughs> and everyone was side-eyeing Queensland going, come on. <laughs> um <laughs> So I'm very excited. We're a little about bit country. That. You got to remember that <laughs> Queensland. We're just a bit country. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's those those old jokes about when you cross the border, you wind your wind your watch. watch back fifty years. Um, yeah, I mean, when I moved here, it was like landing on the moon and there's days when I'm still like, what is happening here? <laughs> Why do we do things like this? This is nuts. Um, it is so, so backwards in so many ways. Um, and we've still got a long way to go. I think in particular in, in Queensland with GPs getting on board, and understanding transgender issues. Mm -hmm. 
but I think having that change in the law for birth certificates will help so many people in so many different ways. And Western Australia, come on, you can do this. Let's go. <laughs> come on. <laughs> it's, it's interesting that um, I've noticed a change in, you know, in the last four years, just the way that the NDIS is presenting forms, particularly around gender and gender boxes and so on. Um, I support a beautiful person who has changed their name and their gender and, you know, they had to notify the NDS and it was quite a big, big stressful moment because, you know, any contact with, they've had such negative experiences with any contact with any government bodies and, and bureaucrats. So, so they had predicted and they had been quite anxious expecting um, the NDIS to be yet another hurdle and it was beautiful. It was as literally as simple as print it out, tick your correct box, scan it, send it in. And um, I was really, really, um, really impressed with that. You know, it was easy as it should have been. Yes. Well, we did discuss that a little <coughs> bit on the last episode people might have heard. On episode number five, we talked about the breaking news of the change in the NDIS. And now they've they've got a form. So all you have to do is is fill in the form. You don't even have to call them, no, which is... Sometimes an unpleasant experience, <laughs> the call centre, um, but maybe we won't go into that. <laughs> um, and I like that it's a form now and that just makes it really easy for people. So um, I, th- I think they're getting better incrementally, um, like you say, they're starting to know better and do better, but sort of at the same time, I'm like, seriously, you know, come on, go faster. <laughs> Patience is a virtue, Hannah. Oh, I I have it for some things, obviously, as a support coordinator. I absolutely have to have patience yes. or it, it wouldn't work. Um, however, for, for some things, particularly like trans rights, I, I don't have time for people to wait. To wait, yeah. I, like my family members need trans rights now yeah. and need to not be afraid of being murdered just for being who they are. Or, or just ridiculed just on a form. Yeah. Just be, able to, just be able to change a form. Right. That's all we're asking for today. Well, that too. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Um, you have a child who has a disability. Yep. And is he on the NDIS? No, no, no. My, my son has moderate intellectual disability. Um, no, he's at mainstream school and he's supported, you know, by my husband and, and me and our family home and um, beautifully supported at school. Um, could, could not be, could not criticise the public education system at all. Um, he has got quite complex learning disorders. So we, we joke at home about he's got the alphabet. He's got <laughs> with the, all the disses, so dyslexia, yeah. dysgraphia. So, so, so um, school's difficult for him, um, but we are so blessed to have such a beautiful, beautiful human amongst us. Yeah, His, his, his disability is, a, is um, a, a really beautiful gift to us. He's just the coolest guy and the nicest human. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. And what I love 
to is seeing people in this sector who have lived experience mm-hmm. of um, of disability, whether they have a disability themselves or you know children or parents or whatever. Yeah. I think it is just so important to have that bit of insight. Um, and so like as a support coordinator, when we do come across, parents of children we have that extra bit of it'll all be okay yeah or or parents of adult children as well just as much you know um I'm working with a family at the moment and the parents are are aging you know they're they're sort of um they're getting nervous they're worrying about you know what might happen next and I, I guess it's that fear and concern is compounded for them because from their younger years and their experience of disability and and what on earth would happen next, um, it, it's a very big big concern for them. So, yeah, we, we do need to understand. I was thinking about this actually this morning. Um, I was doing my makeup, so maybe my creative brain gets switched on. But I thought, I bet Hannah asked me something about mental health, you know, <laughs> mental illness, and um, it occurred to me when I was trying to formulate it. I thought, you know. I think that all of us, I think of mental health as um, on a continuum, just like our, our physical health. And so um, each and every one of us, you know, we wake up on a morning, we, we're fluey, you know, and I think if you make that analogy to your to mental health, you know, that could, you know, sit there in a line with a low mood. Um, then other mornings we wake up and we could literally jump mountains. And um, I think all of us have that continuum of, of mental health. Um and then, of course, you've got significant diagnoses on top of that that sit sort of alongside that continuum. But when when I'm talking to people about, you know, recovery and, and, and mental health, it really, um, I think it, I think people with significant diagnoses can feel very isolated in that diagnosis, in that label. Um, and I think it does help for people to understand that this is a diagnosis is not just a silo of, of mental health or a mental illness or mental unwellness. Um, it's a continuum and, and some highs are higher than others and some lows are way deep. Um, but, but that continuum exists for everybody. Yeah. Look, I, I really like that. I think that labels help to the point of a lot of research has gone into these are the sorts of things that have helped other people with this label. Yep, absolutely. And this is ABC. Let's try ABC and then if it doesn't work for you, that's fine. We'll try something else. But sometimes it helps to have the label initially to go, okay, let's let's try ABC because we know that works for other people with that label. That's right. It's the science behind it. Yeah. You know, me- it's, it's medical science. Mm. So, um, you know, I've, I've talked to people that have been received a diagnosis and they've just simply don't, don't accept that. Do not acknowledge that. Yeah. And that is absolutely fine because they are not their diagnosis. Right. You know, it's, it doesn't define them at all. And then you've got the flip side where some people are absolutely defined by yes. their label and they walk around expecting everyone to just magically know or they constantly talk about it as if, you know, oh, I couldn't possibly do this or that because I have blood diagnosis. And and it. 
I, I'm often fascinated by that way of looking at it equally as the one saying, oh, no, I don't have any label. Mm. And, and it fascinates me the, the ways people can, can fit in there. And, of course, it's, it's a continuum a bit like mental health itself mm. because then there are some people who are like, yeah, that's my diagnosis, whatever, you know, moving right along. And um, so I think it, it, it endlessly fascinates me the way people approach that, definitely. Yeah. And, and I think that's what, you know, keeps me invigorated and, and curious in this role is, is just I have this curiosity for people. Um, yeah, I just like to know people, get to know people, share people. Um, yeah, and without that curiosity, you can get tangled up with the diagnosis. In fact, my forms don't even have a square for you, what is your diagnosis. So, um, because it's sort of, it's it's quite secondary to to what are your challenges and what would you like assistance with. Yeah, like I think I think that's really interesting. Um, I think in some ways, like from from a support coordination point of view, I absolutely understand why you would do that. Um, and then there's the flip side of, well, when we write our end of end of plan report, yes. we have to write it, talk about diagnosis. And at that point, we do need to know exactly what are the diagnosis. Oh, I need to know. It's just certainly yeah. not on my top 10 questions. No, no, yeah. absolutely. And then sometimes it, it, one thing that does infuriate me often enough is that you'll go into that review meeting and they'll say, oh, actually, they're not on the NDIS for that diagnosis, so we're not accepting anything that talks about that. Mm -hmm. And you're like, what? <laughs> actually, so what, what did they get access for? <clears throat> it's, it's really curious that you've raised this. I've actually been, I've challenged um, a member of the NDIS just this week over exactly this. So a couple of years ago, on your NDIS plan, there was a little statement about your, what your diagnosis is. And that doesn't, that's not visible anymore on your plan. And I understand why it's not, you know, if, for some people. But for support coordination and very particularly plan management, it's really key information to know why somebody met access. Um, and a good example is um, I know a gentleman who has a, a medical condition. So he has a chronic pain condition, but he also has a, a mental health diagnosis. And so in his mind, his mental health diagnosis is irrelevant. It doesn't matter. In his day-to-day -day life, his chronic pain condition is what matters. However, his NDIS plan does not recognise his medical condition. It recognises his psychosocial disability. And so for him to understand or... Um, build capacity around and get strong benefit from his NDIS funding, he, he needs to appreciate what is reasonable and necessary. And so by focusing exclusively on that chronic pain condition that is a medical concern and not part of his NDIS recognised disability, it's inappropriate for him to spend in that way. His plan manager is absolutely not party to that information because it's not included on his plan. So his plan manager is completely supportive of him spending significant amounts of his NDIS funds on services and providers that under NDIS guidelines would be or are, not would be, definitely are, 
considered not to be reasonable and not to be necessary. And so, you know, it was, I had a bit of a strong suspicion that this gentleman, um, you know, I'm, I'm not clinically, I'm not a doctor. I don't have clinical skills to diagnose. But after long discussion, I had a few good reasons to, to consider, does this gentleman have another diagnosis? And, but it took actually a 25-minute phone call back to the NDIS to determine what exactly he had met access over um, and to clarify that his, his medical condition is, is not one of those things. So it took that level of conversation and that amount of time to then go back and inform the plan manager, you know, about what, has, what had been taking place for two plans was, was now really not considered appropriate to continue. And you're right, if we had a little bit more transparency around that as coordinators, um, it would really, really help. Um, and it really would help from the perspective also of once somebody has met access from the NDIS for one particular disability, that doesn't mean for one moment that they should not be um, have the right to apply to have an additional disability acknowledged or recognised and included on their access. So people are out there um, just trying to do their very best with the funding that they have access to when it may not genuinely be meeting their needs on a day-to-day -day basis, you know, to maintain their safety and, and to assist them to reach their, their goals. So it is important information. Mm. It's really important information. And not everybody has the capacity to share that openly with their coordinator and you know what? They don't have to if they don't want to either. So there's some people don't have capacity and some people simply choose not to, both of which are completely fine. Um, but when we're asking for consent to talk to the NDIS, that's actually one of the things that I'm asking for um, to, to clarify that. I love that bit at the end. I just want to pick up on, on getting consent to ask the NDIS something very specific. Yep. Because what I am very big on is even if I have a consent form, I still want to go back to that person and go, look, I know you've given me consent to, to talk to Alicia, but here's exactly what I'm going to talk to her about actually. Yeah. Or sometimes I like to write on consent forms, I am going to ask the physio exactly about this. Yeah. And because I think it's really important that the client has total choice over not just that I talk to you or to their providers, but what I'm talking about. You know, it's, it is. It's really, really important. And it's to do, you know, like consent forms are, are, are they were born from legality. You know, it's all about yeah. rules, regulations and legal aspects. But that's not actually what consent is. Consent's about respect and it's about honesty and it's about openness and it's about trust. So I know why we have consent forms, but consent forms are distinctly different to consent. Um, yeah, so we have to be open. Um, I picked up a bit of a, I guess it's a slogan. I don't even remember where I heard it. But it's uh, nothing about me without me. Right. And um, so if we're having those tricky conversations and, you know, a big part of my role is around capacity building. So supporting people to have tricky conversations, mm -hmm. modelling how to have tricky conversations, right. modelling language around 
conversations, you know, being um, confident and assertive and self-advocating. So it makes complete sense that those phone calls should be happening in the open um, with the participant right next to me, you know, participating in that conversation. It just makes sense. The, the other thing I try to do, if I have a client who um, uses email and has mm. the ability to do that, I will CC them into every single email that I send out about them. And some providers do get upset with me because they're like, why are you including the client or their family into this email and I'm like well for transparency and so that they know what I've said when I've said it so that they're not calling me the next week and going have you sent that email yet they know exactly when I've sent that email and what I've said about them and then hopefully what the answer is because hopefully they press reply all and then everyone knows what the answer is and and it I get quite concerned about providers who go, oh, I, w- I really don't like the way that you include the family or the client in the emails. And I was, I'm like, well, that's too bad because that's what I do. <laughs> yeah, I, I think the bigger question is not why would you, but why would you not? Right. Um, I, I do exactly the same thing, um, particularly with um, I've got a couple of participants whose uh, family members are their guardians. And so, you know, literacy reasons, they, they get CC'd on everything. And, um, you know, literally, I'm, I'm sure their inbox looks like just spam from right. me. <laughs> so we've got a bit of an agreement with if it's just a so you know email and you CC'd on it, then that's it. But if I want you to do something and you need to take an action, the subject line is always to do you know, or action, you need to do this. Um, and because, you know, people get busy, they don't have to read like st- you know, strings and strings and strings of, of what could sometimes be back and forth. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I've got a bit of a deal going. So if you need oh, to take I action, that idea. If, you, if you're scanning through and you've got emails from me and it says to do, that means yeah. I need you to open it and there's something you need to do. There's a secret message for you in there. So, oh. And it works really well yeah. because otherwise those important action items can get yeah. lost. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, right. that makes so much sense. Yeah. It's a deal we make at the very beginning. So if I need yeah. you to do it, it will say to do. Yeah. So. Otherwise, you'll You can just read notice. it at your leisure. Yeah. Read it at your leisure if you choose to. Because, yes. yeah. um, you know, you don't even have to read some of the stuff I write, you know, but you can choose to. Yeah, yeah. Um, Yeah, it works well. Yeah. I want to go back to um, diagnoses that you make access for. Mm -hmm. Now, this is a something that annoys the living bejeebas out of me. Tell me. (laughs) Because... Yeah, why don't you tell us what you really think? Um, <laughs> what annoys me is that the original idea of the NDIS was not necessarily about diagnosis. It was about functioning. That's right. And the fact that it's turned completely 180 to be about diagnosis mm-hmm. makes me s- eternally frustrated because 
You are exactly right that sometimes people think they've made access for one thing and they've actually made access to something totally different. And so their plan does not reflect what really they actually need because their daily functioning yeah. is affected by some maybe medical diagnosis, but they can't function and are disabled by that medical thing. And so it absolutely should be recognised by the NDIS. And it really pisses me off when planners say or LACs say to me, nope, that's not reasonable and necessary because blah diagnosis does not need this thing or that thing. And I'm like, that is, first of all, you don't know what their particular diagn like their particular brand of that diagnosis right. like requires. Secondly, <laughs> like just it is reasonable and necessary if all of the therapists have recommended it and said it's reasonable and necessary because that their functioning requires that we have all of this. Yeah. That's right. The other thing it doesn't take into account is the humanity right. so of each individual. Um, the NDIS is not means tested. So we have people accessing the NDIS, very rightly so, from all different socioeconomic backgrounds, all different cultural backgrounds, all different um, religious and belief systems. And so that has actually quite a big impact on, on the way that your personal private community wraps around and supports you um you know the family you were born to basically can change the way you're being supported the age of your parents your age um the capacity of your siblings um all affects this so you're right by just focusing on a tick box of a diagnosis it's failed to take into account all of those different things um and then the thing that i see particularly tragic is when those informal supports, the what I like to call the humanity, when the humanity changes, you yeah. know, when parents age, when finances are less, when the ability to um, pay the gap on a Medicare bill changes and what we've, what we're left with is, is people's disability impacting them much more significantly. Um, even appropriate housing, you yeah. know, um, their their disability can can change on a dime um, in that functional capacity, definitely. So um, I've got a few customers with, on paper, their disability is identical. So on paper, they have the exact same physical disability. They have got very, very different life experiences of that disability though. Um, and the differences come from the family that is around them, the stability of their home, their financial situation prior to acquiring this disability, the age at which they acquired the disability, um, the compounding factors, even things as simple as personality and character changes the way that a disability impacts on a functional level. So you're right, it, it has to be functional. We have to stop and talk and listen. Um, and provide evidence, basically. We're, we're like little CSIs, our support coordinators. We're just about pulling evidence together um, to, to prove a point, you know. And for someone sassy and loves a good argument, it's perfect. <laughs> 
That's that's awesome. So I'm now going to give you our final question. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> Not that I haven't enjoyed you, but I'm, I'm keen to end it. Oh, thank you. <laughs> um, in your ideal world, what would the future of NDIS look like? Oh, wow. I hadn't even thought about that. Look, this is my unpopular opinion. I'm going to be probably cancelled for this one. But I want to see more registration. I want to see registration compulsory across more groups. Um, I want to see less people being um, exposed to, less vulnerable people being exposed to unscrupulous acts. I want to see more scrutiny over the finances of NDIS. Um, NDIS is all about being sustainable. Um, and so, you know, unless we are putting our spotlight and our thumb down on fraud, we simply won't be sustainable. Um, and what that means is that people who are truly, truly deserving are, are going to miss out. So, um, yeah, I want to see, I know I won't be popular, but I, I'm transparent. I'm ready to be looked at. I'm ready to be audited. I'm ready to be checked over. Um, and I expect everybody else in this game should feel the same way. Um, I've got this as a support coordinator. I Every now and then I'm seeing new and creative ways of people defrauding the system. And, it, and I find it really, really offensive um, because you're defrauding everybody. You're defrauding the participant who genuinely deserves it. You're defrauding the taxpayer. You're jeopardising an entire, um, I guess, industry. And, and you know, if, if the NDIS crumbles, where will we be? It has to be sustainable. I don't want to see people missing out just because someone has, has taken more than they've earned, basically. Not more than they deserve, but more than they've earned as a provider. So... Um, yeah, I want to see more regulation. Mm, interesting. I know it's not popular. I know it's, that. It's, and I I'm think it's sorry. a hot button issue. <laughs> and I'm, I, I do think it's a hot button issue. I get very concerned with r registration in the sense that Often people look at registration equals quality and it just doesn't. No, no, absolutely there doesn't. There are so many terrible, terrible, registered, terrible. registered <laughs> providers out there. And so I don't feel like more registration fixes the problem. No, I think more scrutiny. Yeah. Yeah, because people, need to be, people need to be on notice that you're being watched, you know, yeah. absolutely. The, the other problem with registration as it currently is, it currently and, is. and I do understand that what you're, you're sort of thinking is, is something slightly different, yeah. but as it currently is, it's really just a bunch of paperwork. Do so, you have your yeah. paperwork yeah. and is it all in order? And if you can show that you can be registered and it's not hard, you can just pay for all of that paperwork from a from a company. Absolutely can. And <laughs> as long as you just have it all in yeah. this perfect order, yeah. like that's it. That's all you've got to do essentially. And I I don't like that. And and I don't like that it requires, you know, such a massive investment because it is a, a lot of money mm -hmm. to become registered. It's a lot and of money to maintain registration as well. Absolutely. 
So, in saying that, I just can't see, I just don't know what the alternative way to to really pull in scrutiny. The other concern I have is that when you are a registered provider and you and the participant is agency managed, mm-hmm. you can just put your invoices in and nobody checks it. That's true. Yes. Whereas if it goes to a plan manager, at least you have one person having a quick squiz. Often we know they can be wrong <laughs> With still. cloudy glasses on. Yeah. <laughs> but at least there's there's a there's a person there yes. having a quick squeeze and going, hang on a second. That's I just, not I just think that we need to be everybody registered or unregistered. Should yeah. be open to audit and scrutiny. And it's not just the financial side of this either. Yeah. It, there's more to it where um, not everybody with a disability is, you know, weak and vulnerable and needs to be protected. That's not the sentence that you'll hear from me. But some people are vulnerable within our community and they tend to be the people that attract the, the predators. Not providers, predators. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Awesome. Well, Alicia, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Oh, thank you. I had no idea what to expect. Um, not quite as painful as I had imagined. You, you should have listened to the other episodes. <laughs> Do you know how busy I am? <laughs> I, um, I'll have to put Very it on in the car because awesome. I listen yes. to ABC radio in the car. Um, yeah, in the car. That's exactly right. Yeah, That's what I, I listen because I do enjoy a bit of talk back. And I, all the time I spend in the car, I decided that if I heard another 80s song played on repeat again, I might jump out of the vehicle. And so um, I've switched over to ABC Radio and I feel a little bit smarter as a result. So I'm going to keep up with it. But your podcast might be something to put on play then. We'll, we'll help you get smarter. That's, that's my guarantee. <laughs> I need that. That would be really important. <laughs> if, if only it would help me. Of course it does. Course it oh, does. Yeah, look, and, you know, it, that's interesting that you say absolutely. that because I think that um, in our industry there's lots of um, people feel as though they're competitors mm. and um, – Competitors don't learn anything from each other except no. how to lose. Yeah. And we've all lost plenty. We don't need right. another lesson in that. But, um, we, yeah, I love to collaborate and, and seek out mentors. And that's actually how we very first met. Yes. It is. Um, I, I sought you out. I thought, now that's a smart cookie. So, um, so yeah, that's how we met. And, and to this day I'm still seeking mentors and open to mentoring as well, you know. Um, yeah, but... Definitely collaborate, not com- not compete. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you so much. Thank you for listening. Please share with people you know. You can email us at whatinthendispod at gmail.com. To contact me, it's hannah at tulipcoordination.com.au. And to contact Sam, it's sam at rosenbaum.com consulting. Until next time, as the Green Brothers say, don't forget to be awesome.